uh, I have long had the, uh, I guess, conviction, you would say, uh, of wanting to be precise with language. And I think that comes from uh, now preaching for, I don't know, 12 years and teaching before that and thinking about uh, terms and how to define them and how to say them. And so I've kind of had that conviction for a while. That's actually just grown uh, even more so in, in the last few years. Uh, so many things uh, have loaded terms and uh, evoke sorts of emotion and feelings. And so people ask me questions, sometimes as a pastor, sometimes not even related to the Bible, but someone will ask me something and I immediately kind of withdraw and want to go, what do you mean by that, right? Like define your terms for me when you're asking me that question. Here within the church, sometimes it's like, well, well do you believe in predestination? And I go, well, tell me what you mean. <laughs> Explain that to me and what you think about that. And then we'll have a conversation about it because I want to make sure our terms are clear because a lot of times what will happen is, is one person will mean one thing and you mean something totally different. You're talking about the same word, but you define it differently. And so we're missing each other, miscommunication in a lot of ways. And so that happens a lot. I think it happens a lot in our culture today because that middle ground has so eroded. And a lot of times people are at opposite ends and they want to assign things to you that maybe you don't even believe. And so it's important that we define our terms and we kind of get to the, the heart of what we mean. Uh, there's even terms that I would say within the church, within Christianity, that have been used for a long time that maybe meant something 20 years ago that means something different now, or it takes on a different connotation. I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, uh, kind of grew up in the church and around uh, just from the time I can remember. And I remember people saying regularly, uh, they talk about someone being a believer or a Christian and say, well, are they a born again Christian, right? And they'd use that modifier all the time. And it was a positive thing. And what they were saying is, is really it was kind of code for like, are they truly a believer? Are they a born again Christian, I, I don't hear that as much today. I don't, I don't know what's changed, but I don't hear that as often within the church. But I do hear it at different times today, uh, but it's used in more of a pejorative way. It's not positive. In fact, I can think of a conversation I had a couple of years ago with somebody where they asked me, uh, we were having a conversation, they found out I was a pastor, they started to ask about the church, and then quickly they said, but you're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? And it was like, well, what, you know, like my, my normal, well, tell me, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Why is that a negative? And, and what they were doing is they were equating it to like a fundamentalist or, which is also a loaded word <laughs> that I wanted to then say, well, what do you mean by that? But quickly you can get off into these different things where we're saying kind of, it, it becomes negative or it becomes something, uh, that not what the Bible says it is. And we can get kind of lost in those things. And so today I want us really to think about even that term born again. What does it mean? Where does it come from? Why is it important? If you're paying attention, as I just read the passage from John chapter three, you see that Jesus says it right here in John chapter three and verse three. As this guy Nicodemus comes to him and he's asking questions about who he is. And Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus himself is the one where we get that term from and where it comes from. He's the one that uses it and says it. But if you look at what he says there, he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. The kingdom of God, the idea of God's rule and reign and seeing who God is and the ways he's working and what it looks like. And Jesus says, you cannot see that in full unless you are born again. So that alerts us to that's a pretty important phrase. Some pretty important thing to think about. If Jesus says that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, we should probably think about what that means and why it's important. 
And so we're going to do just that today as we work through this first half of John chapter three. And the way I want us to look at it is we're going to see this conversation between this guy, Nicodemus and Jesus. And it's going to center really around this term that Jesus kind of drops right in the middle of it about being born again. And so the way I want us to look at this is first, I want us just to set the scene, kind of the background, what's happening here. Who's Nicodemus? What's this about? Why is he coming to Jesus? Why is he asking these questions? But then I want us to think about what does it mean to be born again? And then lastly, why is it so important? Why is it so important? So let's just start with the background, kind of setting the scene of what's happening here. If you've been with us since the beginning of the year, we've been walking through chronologically the life of Jesus. And we're doing so not just in one book of the Bible, but in four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, which lay out for us the life of Jesus. But we're kind of taking them and we're arranging them in chronological order so we see kind of the, the way in which Jesus' ministry unfolds. And so last week, actually the last couple of weeks we've been in John's gospel, we'll be there this week and actually the next couple of weeks just because of where we are chronologically. And so here we are in John chapter three. Last week we were in John chapter two and we saw Jesus go up to Jerusalem for Passover and he cleanses the temple. He runs out the money changers and the people that are selling uh, sacrifices in the temple kind of makes a big scene. Uh, what we talked about last week is that's probably in about 28 AD at the end of March, beginning of April. That's kind of where we're, we're placing it at that time. It's early in Jesus's ministry, still in the first year. His earthly ministry really covers a little over three years. And so the first year is kind of the year of preparation. Second year, he becomes very popular. We refer to it as year of popularity. Third year, he's upset a lot of people. And so it's the year of opposition. But we're still very much in the year of preparation, right at the beginning, very early. And so what we saw is he cleanses the temple. A couple weeks ago before that, we saw him turn water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And so he's starting to kind of step out and be more public now. There's a pretty big scene at the temple that he made that we looked at last week. But if you look back last week to chapter 2 and verse 23, John tells us in verse 23 that now when Jesus was in Jerusalem... At the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so we get this idea that he's starting to do more things. He's starting to be more public. We saw that with the cleansing of the temple, but also the water of wine. But also John seems to allude that there's other things that he's done that are getting people's attention. He doesn't tell us much about what it is at this point, but he's starting to do some signs and he's starting to do some things. And that's the occasion in which this guy Nicodemus seeks Jesus out. He's starting to hear about him and he's starting to see the things he's doing. And so he comes to Jesus to kind of figure out who he is. And so look at what it says there at the beginning of chapter three. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so, again, it alerts us to Jesus is doing some different things. So much that he's gotten the attention of this guy, Nicodemus. But we need to know a little bit about Nicodemus and who he is and why he's coming to Jesus to begin with. And so John tells you that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. And the background here is that the Pharisees are kind of the ruling body of the Jewish religious observance at the time. They were kind of in charge of how that you worship and how you come to the temple and these things that you do. And they had a reputation of being very, very observant, strict observance of the law and what was written and what God's word said. But they were also so strict that they'd kind of made up rules over time. 
they'd added to and they had their own traditions that they held people to. And there was this heavy burden that they would kind of put on everyone. And I want to be fair to the Pharisees because they get a real bad rap all the time when you read through the Gospels. But I think this all started from they wanted people to really adhere to what God's word said. But in doing so, they became very legalistic and they became very kind of hard in the way that they went about it. And so I always use this as an example because it kind of illustrates what they were doing. In the Ten Commandments, it talks about keeping the Sabbath holy, right? That you're supposed to have a day of rest. You're supposed to stop and rest and say that that God's in control of everything and I can put down my stuff. And God uh, tells us to do that, to have a day of rest. And so one of the things that the Pharisees would do is they would say that you're not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. That was one of their rules. What in the world? You can't look in the mirror. And the reasoning was that if you looked in the mirror, you might see a hair that's out of place and you would go to fix it. And now you're working and you've broken the Sabbath. And so it was like rules on top of rules on top of rules to keep you from breaking anything that the law said. And so they were known as being like really heavy handed, seeking holiness, but so much so that they had put this burden on everyone around them. And so they were very serious about holding to God's word and they saw themselves as kind of the protector of that. And so part of Nicodemus seeking Jesus out as he's preaching and teaching and he's starting to do some signs is like, we, we need to know who this guy is. We need to understand who he is and what he's saying. And so part of this was kind of protection of like, we need to check this out because we're the authority. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus But there's something about Nicodemus that you'll see, and it unfolds in John's gospel throughout it, is that Nicodemus seems to be truly seeking to understand who Jesus was. Although he's there as a Pharisee, and although he's there kind of as an official capacity, and his person uh, of being somebody who's who's the authority, but but you see in the way that he addresses Jesus that he seems to actually be seeking. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so I want you to think about just the fact that he even addresses Jesus as rabbi, right? Nicodemus, if we put him in today's kind of way of us thinking, we'd say Nicodemus is like a seminary professor that has multiple doctorates. He's the authority. He's the guy that you want to go ask the questions. He's the one that's going to help you understand. He really knows what he's talking about. He's an intellectual, very learned guy. Jesus is 30 years old, son of a carpenter from the middle of nowhere. Not really any formal education, so to speak. But here, Nicodemus comes to him and he calls him teacher. He says, Rabbi, teacher. You must be from God because you're doing all sorts of things that we can't explain. And so I think there is some humility, at least in Nicodemus, trying to understand who Jesus is. The fact that he even addresses him that way. And so he comes and he asks him and he begins to have this conversation. And really what Nicodemus is just saying is, is who are you? You see, you've got to be from God because of all the things you're doing. Who are you? Now, there's a couple things before we look at Jesus's answer that you need to know just background about what they believed at this time. Pharisees in general, someone like Nicodemus would have held to. There's a whole bunch of things that are kind of operating in the background that you don't just see in this passage, but they're, they're vital information to help us understand the conversation that's about to take place. The religious leaders at the time were looking for the Messiah. And I think that's partly what was in the background of what Nicodemus was saying as he comes. Is, are you the Messiah, Jesus? Are you the one that we're looking for? 
But their idea of the Messiah was going to fit in just kind of a little box of the way they thought the Messiah would be. Their understanding of the Messiah was one that's going to bring a very literal physical kingdom. And in doing so, they were going to bring the end of history. And so their understanding at the time is the Messiah would come. He would overthrow governments. He'd be this great leader and he would usher in God's kingdom and it would all happen at once. And so in a lot of ways, what they're thinking about is a conquering king that's going to bring a very literal kingdom. And when he does, he's going to welcome the Jews into it. The Israelites are going to be welcomed in because of their Jewishness, because of their observance, they would be welcomed into this kingdom. And this is the way Nicodemus would have been thinking And so when he shows up to question Jesus, those things are operating in the background, which, by the way, is why God sends John the Baptist. Right. We talked about this the very first week, the first two weeks. John the Baptist comes and says, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And he's saying, repent of this idea that you're saved just by your heritage. Don't rely on the fact that you're Jewish or that you're an Israelite, but repent and put your faith in what God is doing. And so John the Baptist had very pointed words for the Pharisees. You're going to see Jesus have very pointed words for the Pharisees. And the reason is, is all this stuff that has grown up around their beliefs that the Bible doesn't actually say. But they're holding to those things with the same conviction they are of the things that the Bible does say. And so Nicodemus has all these things kind of operating in the background. And he shows up and he says, I see these signs you're doing, calls him rabbi. And he basically is asking, who are you? Like, are you from God? Because look at all these things you're doing. But then Jesus is going to answer him in a way that's going to throw him for a loop. And so look at what Jesus says, verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And so Nicodemus is thinking in a very, uh, kind of small way, I guess you could say. And what Jesus answers him and what he says to him kind of shakes Nicodemus's foundation. Who are you? I've seen the signs you're doing. He shows up with this lens of I'm going to put Jesus through the test. I'm going to ask him some questions. Maybe he's hoping to see some signs. I'm going to use my intellect and all my learning and my knowing, and I'm going to figure this out if this is a man from God or not. And Nicodemus is thinking that way. And Jesus drops this bomb that says, you must be born again. You're asking me a question that is spiritual in nature, but you are coming at it from an intellectual end, is what Jesus is saying. You're going to miss this completely if you just think about it in this way, this little box that you're trying to put me in. And Jesus says, that won't work. You have to be born again. Where Nicodemus wants to use his logic to prove who Jesus is, he says, that that won't work. And so I want us just to think about that for a second. And I don't want to get the wrong impression. There's nothing wrong with logic. There's nothing wrong with thinking. There's nothing wrong with with wrestling your, your understanding and how things come together. There's nothing wrong with asking good questions. 
The Bible tells us that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That as we hear God's word and as we see these things and as we wrestle with them, the Bible also tells us to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we're to be thinking, that we're to be rational, that we're to to wrestle with the implications of what we believe and why we believe them. We're told that we're to give a reason for the hope that was in, was, that is within us, Peter writes. And so over and over, the Bible's not against thinking. It's not against wrestling with ideas. It's not any of those against any of those things. But what the Bible tells us is all those, although those things are good, to truly understand who God is and what he's doing and ultimately who Jesus is, you have to have a fundamental rebirth. That every single one of us is sinful and we're marred by our sin And our sin has so darkened the way we think and the way that we operate that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life, we won't ever be able to see who God is. We will never be able to enter into God's kingdom. And so here's Nicodemus, a man who has lots of good works, lots of knowledge and understanding, lots of great intellect, and he shows up kind of with that air of, I'm now going to question you, Jesus, and I'm going to figure this out. And Jesus immediately starts with, unless you're born again, you're never going to see any of this. And he kind of drops this bomb on Nicodemus. And he tells them that he has to be spiritually alive, that he has to be born again. Very literally, the word born from above, born from heaven. You have to have this birth as heaven invades into your life for you to be able to see any of this. And that's what Jesus tells him. And in so doing, he kind of shakes Nicodemus up. Now, I want you to notice, though, when he says this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus seems lost, right? He's like, well, wait a second. Go back in the womb and I'm going to be reborn. How would that work? Or verse 9, as, as Jesus kind of keeps talking, Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? He's lost. He's like, what are you talking about? But notice what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus has an expectation that Nicodemus, who is an expert on the Old Testament, who is the most learned, the the seminary professor with multiple degrees, that he would understand this. And the reason is simple because the idea is all the way throughout the Bible. Even the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is not a new idea. It's actually there in the Old Testament. This idea of being born from above, God moving in your life, the spirit opening your eyes is all the way through the Bible. And I want you just to think about big picture for just a second. From the very beginning, man is made in God's image. We're made to be in relationship with him, but then sin enters the world. We rebel against God right there in Genesis 3 at the very beginning. And we break that relationship with God. By Genesis 6, it tells us that man's thoughts are evil continually. We are so marred by sin that it's all about us and what we do and who we are. And we ignore God over and over and over again. And so what unfolds in the Old Testament is that we are so desperately wicked in our sin that God himself is going to have to come to save us. And that's something that unfolds in the Old Testament, but it's it's there. By the time we get to the prophets, it's starting to come into clear focus that God himself is going to come. And there's all these passages that point to that in which Nicodemus would have known. And so when Jesus is talking about there's got to be this rebirth, 
And Nicodemus is going, what are you talking about? Jesus is actually kind of shocked. Like, how do you not understand this? And so I want to show you just one example. If you would, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. You know where Ezekiel is? He's one of the major prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Uh, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's page 909. But Ezekiel is one of the prophets that is during the time of the, the Babylonian exile that comes in. He kind of is operating in that time. And so he sees Israel at the very lowest and the hard things that they go through. And God is calling Ezekiel to call people to repentance. And yet he's not seeing much good happen. But in Ezekiel 36 and 37, God gives him these visions. And he's showing him what's going to come in the future and the way that God is going to save people and what it's going to look like and how renewal is going to come. And so in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, God's speaking to Ezekiel and he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put them within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Do you hear what he's saying? Right there in the Old Testament, way before Jesus, this is 600 plus years before Jesus. God's speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says, the way in which this revival is going to come is I'm going to come in and I'm going to wash you clean as the spirit comes in your life. And I'm going to take your hard heart that you're ignoring who God is this impenetrable heart to spiritual things, and I'm going to remove it and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to wash you with the spirit and this new thing is going to happen in your life. And that's in Ezekiel 36. But then if you look at Ezekiel 37, the very beginning of 37, one of the most kind of famous passages of the Old Testament prophets. We often refer to it as the valley of dry bones, the vision of the valley of dry bones. And listen to what God does with Ezekiel. Remember, this is... Middle of exile, horrible time for Israel. They followed after all these idols. The nation is a mess. The people that God has chosen as his chosen people are in complete disarray. And God brings Ezekiel and he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Do you hear what he says? Right? This is a passage that Nicodemus would have known very well. And what God says to Ezekiel is this is the way that these dry dead bones will come to life. You speak the word of the Lord over them and I will move and I will give them life. And that's the way it works. Right. Both of those are Old Testament passages that Nicodemus would have known really well. And so when Nicodemus shows up and he starts asking questions about who Jesus is and Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to be born of water and spirit. 
to see the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is pointing right back to these type of passages like in Ezekiel. This is the way God works. This is the way it happens. This is the way you go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's all the way through the Bible. It actually gets even clearer in the New Testament. If you were with us, I think it's the last sermon we did uh, of 2021. We looked at Titus chapter 3. We had one week before we started this right at the end of the year. And we looked at Titus chapter 3. And in Titus chapter 3, Paul's writing uh, to Titus, this young pastor. And he says to him, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our savior. Do you hear what he says? You were dead and you were just like everyone else in the world, but the loving kindness of God moved in your life and brought you from death to life. And he says the way in which that happened was the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the spirit. It's the same thing that God was saying to Ezekiel. Can these dry bones live? You speak the word of God and I will move and I will bring them to life. And so when Jesus says to Nicodemus, how do you not know these things? Saying this is the way God's always worked. That his spirit moves and he brings us from death to life and this is the way it happens. And he's like, you want to know if I'm from God. You want to know if I'm the Messiah. The only way that you're fully going to be able to see that is the spirit moves in your life and opens your eyes to see me. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you're not going to see this. That it's the washing of the water of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And so when he says here to him in in verse 5, it's one of those verses that that, uh, scholars kind of debate over. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Well, what does that mean? Some people say, well, the water is your birth, your first birth, like amniotic fluid and coming out of the womb and being born. And that's what it means. And then the being born of the spirit is, is the rebirth, being born again as a Christian, right? Spiritual death to spiritual life. But I think what he's saying It's not that. I don't think he's talking about baptism. I don't think he's talking about the water of birth. I think he's talking about those passages in the Old Testament. Right? Like in Ezekiel, where he's talking about this idea that you will be cleansed as the Spirit moves in you and washes you. Right? Or the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I think that, the reason I think that's what he's referring to is because he gets to verse 10 and he says to Nicodemus, how do you not understand these things? It was things that were obvious in the Old Testament that were there. And his expectation is you're an expert of the Old Testament. You should know this. And so some will say, well, it means baptism. It's pointing ahead to uh, believers baptism. But Nicodemus wouldn't have had a framework for that. Why would Jesus say to him, how do you not understand these things? It's because it was already there in the Old Testament. And that's the way God had always been working and moving. And so what he's telling Nicodemus, and I want to be that we're clear, that we understand what he means. To be born again is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves in your life 
and brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He opens your eyes to see your need and to see who God is. And then you choose Jesus. But without the spirit working in you to do that, you'll never see the need. Because of our sinfulness, because we are so depraved, because we are so about us and our stuff and what we do, we'll never see it without the working of the spirit in our life. We have to be regenerated. We have to be born again. We have to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life to be able to see who Jesus is. And it's the only way that we'll ever see it. And it's what he's telling Nicodemus here. Now, there's an important last part to this. He connects all this together to who he is, to who Jesus is. Yes, the spirit's going to move. And he's asking, who is Jesus? And he says, we have to be born again. Water and spirit, God has to move in your life. And then what is he going to do? He's going to open your eyes to see what? Look at what he says at the end. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he says, you can't get this. You're not seeing it fully yet. But then he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. That's Jesus' favorite. You'll see this over and over in the Gospels, but it's his favorite title for himself. He applies it to himself over and over. He's talking about himself. He's the son of man who's come. He's the only one that's descended from heaven, fully God and fully man. He's now here. So he's talking about himself now. And then he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right. And so he's saying the spirit has to move and you have to have this rebirth. And then as you do, you have to see the son of man who will be lifted up and then you will be saved. Then you will enter the kingdom. Then you will know the fullness of everything God's created you for. Now, like Jesus said in the temple, right? We looked at last week. He goes in and he clears out the temple and they say, what authority do you have to do this? And he says, tear this place down and in three days I will raise it up. And I told you last week, nobody understood what he was saying. He's pointing ahead to the cross and he's telling them that I'm going to make the temple obsolete in three days and his death and then his resurrection three days later. And they don't quite get that. It's same thing with Nicodemus here. He says, you're asking who I am. He says, the spirit's going to have to reveal that to you. And the spirit's going to reveal it to you. When the son is lift, the son of man is lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Do you know what he's talking about? There's a passage in the old Testament in numbers when they're out in the, uh, wilderness, God has saved the people from in the Exodus from Egypt and slavery. And he takes them out into the wilderness and the people grumble and complain, right? He reads through that. There's a lot of that going on in Exodus, a lot of grumbling and complaining and whatever, right? And so in this particular story, God sends fiery serpents into the camp and it bites the people. And lots of people are dying from these serpents and these getting bit. And Moses goes to God and he says, please have mercy. Save us. People are dying. I know they're grumbling and complaining. Please have mercy on them and save them. And so God says to Moses, go fashion a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and take it outside and lift it up. And anyone who comes and looks at the serpent will be saved. I'll take away their snake bite and they'll be okay. So I want you to think about that. That image that God gave 200, 2000 years before Jesus. You get bit by this thing and now you have this poison coursing through your veins and you have no way to save yourself. There's nothing that you can do. 
And they cry out to God and God says, okay, I will have mercy on you. And he gives this sign and he says, you take it out and you lift it up. And when you see it, you put your faith in my provision of the snake, you will be saved. And so they do. And people come out and they come out of their tents and they walk out and they look at this thing and they're okay. Jesus, God saves them by faith in his provision, right? That's, that's the symbol of what he's doing. Jesus now says to Nicodemus, an expert on the Old Testament that would have known that story very well. He says, when you see the son of man lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, then you'll know. Then you'll know who I am. Then you'll understand what is happening here. And he points him back to himself. And he says, just as the serpent is lifted up, so the son of man will be lifted up. Nicodemus doesn't get this right now. Just like the people in the temple when he says, tear it down and in three days I'll raise it up. And everybody's like, what is he talking about? Here he says this to Nicodemus and he's kind of like, okay. Right? Intellectual guy trying to wrestle through all this stuff. Doesn't quite get it. You know, one of the coolest parts, just spoiler as you go ahead. Nicodemus shows up when Jesus gets crucified and he sees him lifted up on the cross and he becomes a believer. God plants the seed. Jesus in his great mercy and love explains this to him and fosters that. And then the spirit moves in his life and Nicodemus becomes a believer. He goes, wow, there he is. You get to that in chapter 19 of John. He shows up to bury Jesus with a king's burial because he now knows who he is. And so in all of this, why is this so very important to be born again, born of the spirit that opens your eyes to see Jesus and you see him and you see your need and you put your faith in him. The only way that happens is through a movement of the spirit, taking us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so it's so very important because first and foremost, you cannot be saved any other way. In our sinfulness and our brokenness, it takes a work of the spirit to open our eyes to see the truth of who we are and who God is. It's the only way. And I don't know if you've thought about this before, but you go from spiritual death to spiritual life from the movement of the spirit in your life. That is a miracle. Like in the most real sense, a miracle. Right, we're talking about it in the new member class this morning. What can a dead man do? Not a trick question. <laughs> Nothing. But you go from death to life as the spirit moves in your life and opens your eyes to see Jesus. And then you put your faith in him and the spirit comes in full. And you see the kingdom of God. You see the fullness of who God is and what he's created you to be. It's the only way that we enter in. You must be born again. As the spirit moves in your life, your faith is this new birth that is a miracle. And so I want you to think about that, why that's so practically important. The only way in which you are saved is purely by grace and you cannot manufacture it. Even your ability to believe is a gift of God. Even your ability, even the fact that you can see your sinfulness and you can see how Jesus has answered it, that too is a gift of God. And I want you to think about why this is so very important. One, it shows God's great love for you, but it also should be so radically humbling. Why did you put your faith in Jesus? And the answer is because God had mercy on you and he opened your eyes to see it. 
And when you understand that, it puts us in a place of thankful humility. But it also puts us in a place of radical dependence on him for everything. And that's a good place to be. It's where we were designed to be. It's where we were created to be. If the only way the person that you love and you're spending time with and you're sharing the gospel with, the only way that they're going to see it is the spirit is going to move in their life. That's wonderfully freeing because I can't screw it up. Because if I could, I definitely would. That it's going to be God's work and doing that. So it's wonderfully freeing. But it's also going to push me to be on my face praying that God would reveal himself. I can't do this. And so it makes me more dependent, but it's also freeing in the sense that it's not ultimately up to me, that it's God's doing and that he chooses to allow us to be part of it. That's really good news in all those ways. And so that we would see that, that we would rest in the glory of God's movement and what he does, that we are born again by his grace, by the movement of his spirit. So would you pray with me, God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. That you and your great love for us have opened our eyes, that you've moved in the spirit, that you've taken our heart of stone and removed it and given us a heart of flesh. That you've taken our dried, dead bodies And as the word is spoken over it and the spirit moves and you bring us to life and it's all because of your grace and what you've done for us, help us to see that afresh today. I pray that in our relationships with the people around us that we would be so dependent on you in all things. That we'd be constant in prayer asking that you would do this work that only you can do. We thank you that you allow us to be part of it, that you use us in your plans, use us in mighty ways for your glory. And for your name's sake, we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.